Well, good morning. Well, I want to begin by asking what gets you excited. If someone told you you had just won a three-week, all-expenses-paid trip to anywhere of your choosing, would that get you excited? Well, how about if you had a hobby or were involved in a sport that you just loved and someone offered to buy you all the equipment, all the gear, the best quality uh, supplies that you would need for that hobby or for that sport, free of charge, all expenses paid, so that you could pursue that, that hobby or sport that you love. Would that get you excited? What if somebody said to you, you had just won You and your family had just won something that you felt you most needed, but you'd been living without for years. It could be we're talking about a new car, or or a family holiday, or or your first house. Would that get you excited? Yeah, of course it would. Certainly we'd get excited about those things, and for good reason. Now, a couple months ago at the church office, Lucy Todd got a call. From, on her cell phone from CHVN. And she answered in a normal way, calmly, and then she seemed to get excited. She said, yes, yes. And suddenly she was out of her chair, pacing the floor, and, and speaking quickly, and sounding excited. And when she finally hung up, she, she found out she'd well, she had recently entered a contest with CHVN, and she found out she'd won a free lunch for the entire office, all expenses paid. Wow. Now that's not as big a deal as a new house, but it was still exciting because it was free and it was, it was hers. It was, a, it was a prize. Now, when I, I get excited in a similar way when I read the first chapter of Ephesians. When I read the first chapter of Ephesians, I read about the gospel of your salvation. And that is an infinitely more amazing prize than anything that I've mentioned. So listen to Ephesians. I'm going to read, and it's going to appear on the back behind me in the ESV version. Listen to um, verses 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. I get excited as I read phrases like every spiritual blessing, heavenly places. He chose us, holy and blameless, adoption as sons, forgiveness of our trespasses, riches of his grace, lavished upon us. That sounds like a prize of immeasurable worth. And I believe that such a prize is meant to affect how we live our lives right now, here and now, this very day. As a part of our series on Go With the Gospel, I want to call this message the gospel of God's glorious grace. Now for those here who've previously read Ephesians, have you ever just paused and pondered those words, every 
spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How does a person absorb such a thought as every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? I mean, it's one thing to consider that we've been blessed with blessings from heaven. But to think that we've received every spiritual blessing from heavenly places is amazing. It's a prize infinitely beyond anything we can imagine. And it's a prize that should cause every one of us to be especially excited as Paul reaches out across the centuries to tell us about this prize. Um, This theme goes throughout all of Ephesians. Is that me? I'm sorry. I I don't know this number, but I think I need to get this. Let me try this. Hello, Hello, Mr. Peters. Yes, speaking. This is the New Testament Writers Guild calling. My name is Paul. I'm one of the apostles who helped form the guild. Although, actually, you should probably know that I'm the very least of any of the writers in it. Anyway, I digress. I understand that you were speaking to God recently. And I also heard that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I did. That is truly wonderful. I was asked by God himself, the president of our guild, to inform you that you, Kenneth Peters, are therefore the beneficiary of, and, as amazing as this sounds, I assure you that you can take this quite literally, that you are a beneficiary of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Congratulations. Well, that's amazing. Well, thank you very much. Ah, you're most welcome. But you know what? I must go now. I have many more calls to make. Okay, goodbye. Bye. Wow. Whatever, glad I took that call. That's amazing. Wow, I bet you guys didn't know I just got saved. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us today. That is astounding. So, let's pause and ask ourselves, what does that even mean? (laughs) Do we even get what that means? Well, I need to be really honest with you. Sometimes when I read this in Ephesians, my first impulse is not to get excited, but to question it. Because, mostly because of how much it seems to contrast with some of the present realities in my life. I think, really, how can I be experiencing that much blessing when I'm struggling with so many things? If the Bible tells me that I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, then why does so much about myself and my life not seem to line up with what I know is true in heavenly places? What's the deal? So I question it. And we might wonder, how can that be possible when we all know how incredibly flawed we all are in our actions and in our attitudes and in our thoughts and in our motives We're flawed. So how can this be true? We might even ask, why does there seem to be such a gap between what God's word tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and many of the realities of our lives? And with those questions in mind, we might be tempted to resign ourselves to be blessed with just some spiritual blessings from the heavenly places. That'd be still be good, right? Heavenly blessings are amazing. Even just one heavenly blessing is amazing. So I'd be happy with even just a few. But as I read that verse, I can't deny that I'm eager for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. After all, if God said that's a part of the good news he shared with us, then it must be possible to experience it. So I look a little closer, and I see a tiny little phrase attached to that promise of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Did you know that Paul never once referred to followers of Jesus as Christians? Never. But he frequently referred to them as those who are in Christ. In fact, he used that phrase, in Christ, or variations of it, 38 times just in the book of Ephesians, and 126 times in the book of Ephesians, and 138 times throughout all his writings in the New Testament. The idea of being in Christ was vitally important to Paul. Because unless we're in Christ, we won't experience God's glorious grace. We won't experience the gospel of our salvation. And we won't experience every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. To be in Christ is to be in spiritual union with Christ. Which occurs when we give our lives to Christ. Meaning, we ask him to be in charge of our lives. And then he comes to live in us by his spirit. So that all that is his becomes ours. And we benefit from it all. We benefit from his perfect life. We benefit from his death. We benefit from his resurrection. All of those blessings are ours. Rankin Wilborn writes that to be in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Your frantic attempts to find or craft an acceptable identity, or your tireless work to manage your own reputation, these are over and done. You can rest in Christ. You are completely safe, hidden in him. He represents you before the Father. He covers you, your sin, your shame, your weakness. Is that good news? In short, when God the Father sees a Christian who is in Christ, he sees his son, Jesus. When I was in my late 20s, I worked for the head office credit department for Reimer Express Lines. And as the head office credit department, we were responsible to take all the worst cases from all our offices across Canada. So as they're doing their credit and collections in each office from each major city in Canada, when they got stuck with a very, very difficult client, they'd send those to head office. And me and one other guy handled those cases. And I did all my credit and collections by phone when I was working at Reimers then. But one day, I don't even know why, because it only happened once, maybe because of what happened during this. My, my boss decided to send me to do some personal face-to-face credit and collections in Vancouver. He sent me to Vancouver to collect some of these accounts. Now, I was an inexperienced, very naive 27-year-old who knew next to nothing about the business world. And yet, when I arrived at Reimer's Vancouver office, all doors opened to me. I was head office. You could say, I was in head office, and head office was in me. (laughs) Everything that was true of head office was considered true of me. Its authority, its financial resources, its priorities, despite the fact that I was just some kid in a suit that didn't know what he was doing half the time. That might have been why there was no second trip. But it didn't matter. When people saw me, they saw head office. And when God the Father sees me, he sees his son, Jesus. I may be distracted by things in me that don't line up with what must be true in heavenly places, but God the Father is distracted by Jesus in me. And because God sees Jesus in me, he sees every blessing that's been bestowed on Jesus on me. And that's true of you. If Jesus is in your heart, he sees every spiritual blessing that's been bestowed on Jesus in you. Wow. I love the fact that the first spiritual blessing that Paul then mentions is that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
Wow. So before the world was even created, God knew that each one of us who knows Jesus would be in his spiritual family. We were in the Father's heart that long ago because even then we were chosen in Christ. That means long before we existed, let alone before we had the chance to do anything that we might feel would make us deserving or that might make us undeserving, God chose us. Meaning the choice has nothing to do with our merits. Paul wrote elsewhere that even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. But then Paul states another spiritual blessing. He says, he says, he chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I don't know how that impacts you, being told that you're holy and blameless in Christ, but I can, I can honestly say I can be overly conscious of my blunders. Is that true of anyone else here? Anyone want to publicly acknowledge that that distracts you sometimes? Blunders that reveal that my life is not really all that lined up that well with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. When I fail, I find it difficult to get it off my mind for a while, sometimes a long while. And I want to beat myself up. I want to accuse myself of things. Sometimes I even call myself names. Anybody else do that? I, usually, I, I think men do that a lot. I, I, I don't know how the ladies are in my home. It's, my wife is usually the one that's saying, don't call yourself names. Because it's not what God does. It's not what our Father does. God wants us to know that in our propensity to be so hard on ourselves... The Greek word that we translate as blameless means without fault. Despite all our blunders, God sees those who are in Christ as truly without fault. Because his son Jesus fulfilled God's righteous standard on our behalf by living a perfect life. And then he took every wrong thing that we've done to the cross when he was crucified so that he could pay the penalty for all of our faults. And then God demonstrates his power by raising him from the dead to new life. And when we put our trust in Jesus' perfect life and in his death for our sins, we enter into union with Christ. And then God only sees Jesus' perfect life in us. And all our sins have been paid for by Jesus. And the risen Christ lives in our hearts by his spirit. That's the good news. That's why it's called good news. Despite how incredible it sounds, it means we become blameless, faultless in God's eyes. Despite all the imperfections we see in ourselves and in each other. That's how God sees us every single day. Paul wrote a couple verses later, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. What do you think of when you think of something being lavished upon you? I think of a waterfall. Stand underneath a waterfall and that's the same picture of God's grace being lavished upon us. It could even be Niagara Falls, which would kill us. <laughs> but when God pours his grace on us, it brings us life. Yeah. Paul is trying his utmost to express the amazing spiritual and heavenly blessings that are ours in Christ. Complete redemption and forgiveness. All according to God's unlimited supply of grace, which overflows and abounds to those who are in Jesus, regardless of our merits. Our merits mean nothing to God. Only Jesus matters. But, but, Imagine 
being totally forgiven, totally forgiven for every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit, and assured of an eternal home, of a beautiful, perfect place called heaven, but then being told God wouldn't be there. Well, I personally would consider that bad news. Even though I'd be forgiven, even though I'd be in a perfect place, I would consider that bad news, and I thank God that the good news of being declared holy and blameless is only found by being in Christ. Union with Christ. Because quite frankly, I don't want a religion that declares us forgiven, but then just left on our own. Because when we're in union with Christ, us and him and him and us, we can walk confidently knowing that we never ever have to face anything we're going through alone. He's with us. He's in us. And he's representing us to the Father so that the Father's favor is poured out on us. Is that good news? That's the gospel. Rankin Wilborn again writes, the greatest treasure of the gospel, greater than any other benefit the gospel brings, is the gift of God himself. In other words, just the fact that we are in Christ is greater than any other spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's why Paul uses relational language to describe the blessings that are ours in Christ. He wrote that God chose us because it gave him pleasure to adopt us as sons. Adoption is relational language. One could preach an entire sermon on what divine adoption is even though there are very few passages that deal with it. It's never mentioned explicitly in the Old Testament. And it's only mentioned five times in the New Testament, all by Paul. And yet, it's a vital theme of God's saving work through Jesus. And a powerful way of describing our relationship with God. Though it's unfortunate that the ESV, the English Standard Version translators, have translated verse 5 to say, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That sounds a little bit rational, doesn't it? It sounds a little cerebral. Well, despite including the phrase in love at the beginning there, in love, and he carries on, which other translations also include, the end of that statement in the ESV sounds a little too brainy, a little too objective, because God's heart is involved in adoption. The New American Standard Bible translates it a little better by saying, according to the kind intention of his will. But the New King James Version, I find, is the best according to the good pleasure of his will. You see, the Greek word that these English phrasers are trying to translate is eudokia, and that's a noun that's derived from a verb that means to be pleased with or to take pleasure in. It's a word that carries a strong sense of desire. It's not just God's purpose. It's not just God's intention to adopt us. It's his desire. It's, it's his pleasure to adopt us. When Thomas and Kelly adopted Mulan, when Kathy and Eric adopted Sammy, when Carl and Andrea adopted Rebecca and Robert, those weren't just objective choices. When they went to get those kids from the countries in which they were born and to bring them back to Canada to be in their home and to be a part of their lives, there was a strong sense of desire. Was there desire in your heart, Kelly? There was, it was a heart thing, not a head thing. It was their pleasure when they saw these kids in a wonderful home and they were able to love on them. Well, when each of them as couples 
Oh, and when Ephesians 1.5 tells us that a holy and almighty God takes great pleasure in adopting us, it's despite however we might see ourselves. And despite however unworthy we may feel. I don't know how many of you feel unworthy of being adopted by the living God. But he adopts us because he loves us and takes pleasure and making us a part of his family. This is so opposite of how I think sometimes. I can be so prone to thinking I'm unworthy, so focused on myself instead of on Jesus. But the fact is, we are unworthy. All of us are totally unworthy. And the only reason we're worthy is because we're in Christ, and Christ is in us. And the Father sees Jesus in us, and he wants to make us then a part of his family. It's also worth pointing out that any translation that has made this verse gender neutral, like the New Living Translation makes this verse gender neutral, has watered down what Paul was trying to say here. Um, Paul was discussing this idea of being adopted literally as sons. We might as well accept it. Ladies, I don't know how you feel. I don't know if you can imagine what it's like for us as guys to have to consider ourselves as part of the bride of Christ. I'm a bride. I'm a part of a bride. And that's okay. I get that. But you, ladies, are sons. You are adopted as sons. And the reason that's important, the Greek word for adoption is made up of two words. A son and the word to place. Paul was writing to Ephesians who were living in a context who understood the significance of someone being placed as a son in a family and the inheritance that that would have resulted in. They would have understood sonship in a way we don't understand sonship in the 21st century. Sons were eligible for a father's inheritance that gave them a special status. Paul was careful to express here that God adopting us is not simply God adding us to his family. It's not just being added to God's family. It's being placed into his family as sons who are deserving of an extravagant, a bountiful inheritance because of Christ in us. In Romans 8 Verses 14 to 17, Paul wrote that those who have been adopted as sons of God are co-heirs with Christ. We're inheriting Christ's inheritance because Christ is in us. But just to ensure that we don't mistakenly think that those who receive this wonderful inheritance as sons should then always have easy, comfortable lives. What happens when trouble comes into our lives? Do we question whether Christ is in us? Do we question whether we've received the blessing he's promised? We can mistakenly think that there must be something wrong if the circumstances in our lives are difficult. Paul clarifies that we are co-heirs with Christ. He says this in Romans chapter 8. We are co-heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. This can be confusing in a comfort-oriented society. But if we look back at Ephesians 1 again, to verse 14, we see that Paul wrote that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, meaning that until then, there will be ways in which we have to endure in this broken, sinful world. That those words until then mean there's a now that, that isn't always that easy. And Christ suffered in this world, and we as his followers will suffer in this world. But that shouldn't come as a surprise to us that we're suffering. If Jesus ha- was one who suffered, he was called the suffering servant. Even before he made it to the cross, he'd been suffering in this world. He experienced hardships in this world. He experienced grief in this world world. He experienced betrayal in this world. He experienced difficult times in this world. 
So why should we be surprised when we do? We don't think that the Son of God, the fact that he suffered, meant that he wasn't experiencing the fullness of God's blessing, do we? We don't question, oh, Jesus couldn't have been fully blessed. Look at how, how he was experiencing difficulties. No, we don't think that way. Well, let's not think that way about ourselves. Just because we're experiencing difficulties doesn't mean we're not blessed and experiencing every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Whatever our circumstances, even if life is difficult, we can still be confident that God has conferred onto us the full inheritance of sons. Our spiritual inheritance of eternal salvation. And because that salvation begins in an imperfect world with imperfect people, it's obvious that it's only possible by God's glorious grace. So no wonder Paul wrote that adopting us as sons is to the praise of the glory of his grace. So first we're chosen. Then we're declared holy and flawless. Then we're adopted as sons, experiencing redemption and forgiveness, all freely bestowed on us, lavished upon us by God's glorious grace. There's nothing for us to do but receive. Let's get our eyes off ourselves. Let's get our eyes unto him. And we can experience this grace. What more does God need to say to convince us that we don't need to measure up to be loved by him and to experience every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? It's not about our merits. It's not about our deservedness. It's about Christ being in us and us experiencing every blessing that's in Christ. Every blessing that's been bestowed on Christ has been bestowed on us. But then, as we read on to verses 11 to 14, it's not immediately apparent to the casual reader who Paul is addressing. And I I want to encourage us to be careful readers of the text. Considering how much Paul has delved into the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians later in this letter, most of chapters 2 and 3 are about the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Most commentators agree that Paul is already addressing them separately in chapter 1, before chapter 2. It makes sense. There's continuity there. And the way that Paul does so in verses 11 to 14, should cause all of us to adjust our posture in what we do with the gospel of God's glorious grace. What do we do with it? We could get all caught up with the many theological intricacies of these four verses, because there are many, but I want to boil it down to to just three simple essential thoughts. In him we have obtained. In him you also, when you heard. And three, the guarantee of our inheritance. We, you, our. It seems clear that the we referred to in verses 11 and 12 are Jewish Christians. As Paul says in verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Paul wasn't shy about the fact that the gospel was for the Jew first. Paul said that, and he believed that. So the the we there is the Jewish Christians. Paul was not, and then Paul then suddenly switches from we to you between verses 11 and 12 and verse 13, the same way he does in chapters 2 and 3, if you read ahead. And that strongly suggests that he has Jewish Christians and then Gentile Christians in mind in these verses. First he says we, then he says you. And he's talking about those who received the gospel first, the Jew first, and then he's speaking of the Gentiles. But it's what Paul wrote about the Jews then the Gentiles that I want to highlight. He wrote first that we, the Jewish Christians, have obtained an inheritance. And then he wrote that you also... 
you Gentile Christians, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So first someone obtained, and then someone else heard and believed. And this totally reminds me of another passage I just want to read from Romans 10, which was also about Jewish and Gentile Christians. Paul wrote, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet who bring good news. In other words, those who have obtained the gospel of God's glorious grace are meant to share it with those who have not yet heard so that they can then believe. And when Paul wrote of the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, he wrote that the Holy Spirit was the guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, our shared inheritance. Now we're not us and them. Now we're not we and you. Now we're our. We have the gospel together. In other words, the gospel of God's glorious grace is meant to be shared across dividing lines. And in particular, in Paul's context here, across ethnic dividing lines. And the gospel of God's glorious grace is meant to unite those who were once divided. We and you become our. Now I have a friend an unsaved friend who I get together on a fairly regular basis. I get together with him about once a month. And um, he's been through some tough stuff in his life. He grew up with a completely different background than mine. Totally different background. And some of what he went through was horrific. Like illegal. Like the kind of stuff people go to jail for. And um, so as I got to know him and he got to know me... We'd get together for lunches, breakfasts, and we'd often talk about the gospel in those conversations. In fact, almost every time we get together, we talk about the gospel. We're going to get together again this week, in fact. And um, when, when we were first getting together, in fact, it might have been the first time we were getting together, I'll never forget something he said. He said to me, why would I want to follow your God after he allowed what happened to me. Your God, me. Sounds similar to Paul talking about we and you. There was a, there was a, a line between us that he was drawing. Well, we got together again and again and again. And over the years, actually it hasn't even, hasn't even been years, or it's been maybe one, between one and two years, um, over these many months, gradually a shift has happened. And the last time, the second last time we got together, he said to me, I think I need what you have in your life. You see what happened there? Me and you, you know, your God, my experiences are starting to come together to become an our thing. Our God. He wants what I have in my life. That's what God wants to do with the gospel. He wants, he wants we and you to become our. So those of us in this room who know Jesus are we who have obtained an inheritance in the gospel of God's glorious grace. And in order for anyone else to hear the word of truth and believe in him, as it says in Ephesians 1.13 If they are to hear the word of truth and believe in him, we who have obtained need to announce God's glorious grace to them. We need to tell them about the good news. How else will they ever hear and believe the way Paul describes here in Ephesians 1? So to go with the gospel means to daily walk in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, to walk in those blessings, to, to, to walk in the good of the blessings that come from being in Christ, to be united with Christ so that all his, that's his is ours. And 
to know that God strongly desires for us to be his sons so he can pour forth an abundant inheritance into our lives. But it also means not just what we're meant to receive and walk in, we're meant to share it. We're meant to share what we've obtained, to share the inheritance we've obtained with those who have not yet heard and believed. Who in your life will hear this word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, which is what it says in verse 13 there, simply because you're so excited and amazed at the many spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that you've received that you can't help sharing about it with those in your life who, who've not yet heard and believed. Who will hear from you? That's the question I want to ask this morning. And I'd like all of us to ask that question. I'd like to invite the worship team to come on up. And I'd like to just quiet our hearts as the worship team comes up. I believe there are who's in our lives. There is a who in your life, maybe more than one who, that has not yet obtained the gospel of our glorious, of God's glorious grace. And you who have obtained it and who are walking in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places have the opportunity to share it with them so that they hear and so that they believe. And I don't want to miss the opportunity to pray for each person that comes to mind for you. It may be multiple people. I can think of multiple people. And if you can't think of anybody, then this is what I want, I want to appeal for. Ask God to bring someone into your life who you can share this with. This is good news. Multiple times in this sermon, I've asked, is that good news? And you've said, yeah. Well, let, we don't want to keep that to ourselves. Right? So let's close our eyes and let's wait on the Lord. Victor, you feel free to play as we're just going to wait quietly. And let's just ask God to bring faces or names to mind. It may just be one. One's enough. That person I'm getting with this together this week, like, like I'm, I'm psyched. I want to pray for that conversation as we prayed this morning. So let's, let's ask God, Father, is there a who in my life? Is there a who in each of our lives who you want us to share this good news with that we've heard about? this gospel of your glorious grace. Who can we share it with so that they hear and believe, so that they can obtain what we've obtained? Lord, who? Would you bring names to mind? Would you bring faces to mind? Even just one, Lord. One is plenty of, there's plenty to do if just one person comes to mind. We can pray for them. We can pursue them. Who, Lord? Thank you, Lord. How many here for, for you, as you just waited on the Lord there, how many for you did a name or a face come to mind? Somebody you know who's not yet received, not yet believed that's in your life. Okay. Not everybody. Not everybody, somebody came to mind. I'd like to pray for those of you who raised your hand, but I'd also like to pray for those of you who didn't. Because I believe we're on this earth to share what God's given us, what this gospel of his glorious grace. If we weren't on this earth for that, why wouldn't God just take us to heaven and remove his witness from this, this earth altogether? The reason he hasn't removed us is because he wants his light. We are his light to be on this planet. So Father, I just pray that you would give each person who raised their hand an opportunity soon to speak of your glorious grace with these, that person or people who came to mind. Give us the opportunity, Lord. Guide us in our words. Guide us in our 
our comings and goings so that we can cross paths with this person. Would you sovereignly arrange it so that we would have a a private moment, a quiet moment, a, a, a suitable moment to speak of how excited we are about your glorious grace, your gospel, your good news. Lord, show us the way. By your Holy Spirit, lead us into those people's lives so that they can hear and believe. And for those here, Lord, who who couldn't, who, who nobody came to mind, Lord, I pray that you'd bring people into each of our lives. Every one of us would have someone in our lives who we're praying for, someone in our lives who we we want to be able to share your good news with. I pray, Father, you'd you'd bring people into each of our lives so that no one is without someone they can share this with so that we and you become our. We become one family in Christ. Thank you, Father. Do it, Lord. Now, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you've, this may be the first time, or I don't know, maybe you've heard about this, about God many times, but you've now heard about his glorious grace and how it has nothing to do with your own efforts, your own merits, about you being deserving. All you need to do is receive. I want to invite you to receive Jesus as your Savior this morning. I want to invite you to respond. If you've been far away from God and you want to return to God, I want to invite you to do that. If you want to participate in this glorious grace, this this amazing favor that God pours out on us who know him, I want to invite you to come to know him, to be adopted as a son. If you want to do that, I'm going to invite you to pray with me a simple prayer. It's simply a prayer that acknowledges we need God, and that God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for all our all the wrong things we've ever done so that we could be forgiven. He took our punishment so that we could be forgiven. And God raised him from the dead so we could have a relationship with him. And he could be in charge of a, a new life that you have with him. If you want to do that, I'm going to invite you to pray this simple prayer with me. And those of you who have prayed it before, let's pray it again. Let's practice this prayer so that when you're talking with that person that came to mind, this is a prayer that you can invite them to pray. Let's all pray together along with those who may want to do it for the first time. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your glorious grace. And thank you for sending your Son who died for my sin, who paid the penalty for my sin. Thank you that that means I'm forgiven when I accept that gift. I accept it today. And I want to make Jesus the Lord and boss of my life. And I want to make him the treasure of my heart as I live for him. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time or coming back to God after being absent from him, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Please come and talk to me. Or you can go to the table where the balloons are and someone will be standing there and you can just receive a gift. We have a gift for everybody who prays that prayer for the first time or comes back to God. Well, I hope you feel encouraged by the gospel of God's glorious grace. And I want to just bless you as you go out. But if you want prayer for anything at all this morning, I know we're going to be praying for Peter and Everill at the front. So if you'd like to pray for them, please come on forward and let's surround them and pray for them. And uh, I got no mic. There's a, Dale's got the mic. Peter, why don't you come on up here so people can see you a little better. Didn't want to interrupt, but uh, uh, before uh, the preach uh, happened, uh, the Lord was reminding me about when I came to Christ as a 16-year-old lost kid. And, uh, you know, when I, when I came to Christ, eternity 
meant very little to me. It was about the here and now. Uh, does this mean something for me now? And the gospel that was preached to me was, God can be your father now. And he will treat you as a son now. And so I want you, if you've uh, been longing for a father, you think, my life is a mess, and I don't know what to do with my life. I want you to invite Jesus to come into your life and say, I need a father. Hmm. Father, in the name of Jesus, could you be my father? Could you father me? And so for the young people in this group, that's what you need. Eternity? Absolutely. (laughs) But right now, you're faced with what's my future in the next year, this summer? And you need God to speak to you and father you, to grow you, to have a plan for you. So I just encourage you to receive Christ and be fathered through that. Yeah, if you'd like to respond to that, please please make sure you come forward and we don't want you to miss out on that opportunity. And if you're here and you're struggling to receive God's grace because your focus is on your own failings, we'd love to pray for you about that too. If, if you feel stuck, in that area, unable to receive, unable to believe it's, it could be true for you. Please come on forward. I, I'd like to personally pray for you if you're feeling that way. But we're going to pray for Peter and Everell. Anybody here who'd like prayer for healing, but otherwise we'd like to just bless you and dismiss you.